So I want to begin uh, by not preaching the sermon, but talking about a teaching moment. Uh, the psalm that we heard today, or we sang, is the opening uh, section of Psalm 119. And if you look at Psalm 119, you'll see that throughout it there are different sections. And this one is Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And what this psalm is, is an acrostic, which means that each section has another letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each sentence, each verse of the psalm begins with that letter. So, amaze your friends. Uh, Something about Psalm 119. Also, there's something now uh, for the last 35 or nearly 40 years called the New Perspective on Paul, and... uh, those who are part of that new perspective, like Ed Sanders, always refer to Psalm 119 as a sort of modest refutation of Martin Luther, who viewed Judaism as a religion of the law, and people were being burdened by the law, and all interpreted Paul in terms of his understanding of the law in that sense. And it's really probably not true. And if you read Psalm 19... You'll hear the psalmist say how he loves to keep the law, that the law is a sign of his gratitude for being a member of the people of the covenant, not to get in or to stay in, but to give thanks. More on that in Episcopalian 101 some other time. (laughs) And the other thing I want to do, I do it every year, we're after the day, but uh, Friday was Valentine's Day. And I had a wedding on Valentine's Day. I've only done about two or three of those. Anyway. <laughs> David Hugh Farmers, the Oxford Dictionary of the Saints. Valentine. Martyr. Two Valentines are listed in the Roman martyrology on February 14. One, a Roman priest martyred on the Flaminian Way, supposedly under Claudius. The other, a bishop of Terni, who was martyred at Rome, but whose relics were translated to Terni. The acts of both are unreliable. And the Bolandists, which are a group of Jesuits in France who wrote an ginormous multi-volume set on the history of the saints... The Bolandists assert that these two Valentines were in fact one and the same. Neither of them seems to have any clear connection with lovers or courting couples. The reason for this famous patronage is that birds are supposed to pair on February 14, a belief at least as old as Chaucer, just as the custom of choosing and calling oneself a Valentine is at least as old as the Paston letters. The Paston letters are a a whole lot of letters that were found in a big house in uh, England, the Paston family, and they're an an enormous resource for historians of the Middle Ages because the correspondence talks about all different kinds of things uh, that are very important, and in this case they talked about being a valentine. On the other hand, some authorities see the custom of choosing a partner on St. Valentine's Day as the survival of the elements of the Roman Lupercalia festival, which took place in the middle of February. Whatever the reason, 
the connection of lovers with St. Valentine, with all its consequences for the printing and retailing industries, is one of the less likely results of the cult of the Roman martyrs. No churches in England seem to be dedicated to Valentine, but his feast on 14 February is constant in the calendars. So there you have it. Lovely. Lo- yeah. <laughs> The, the, re- the reason I, I, I took this little ex- excursus is that I'm tr- trying to wait as long as possible to preach this sermon. <laughs> this, this, is, this is one of the uh, times when a preacher get, takes a little peek at the lessons. Uh, I, my custom is always to do this. Uh, on Sunday afternoon, if I'm not doing anything, I take a nap. And so when I take my nap, uh, the first thing I do, which sounds like, gee, you're supposed to chill, I read the lessons for the next Sunday. So I start the process, you know, thinking. So I took the, uh, after the annual meeting, I read the lessons and I thought, oh, no. (laughs) Mainly the gospel, you know. Because you can say, say, how am I going to, I could just avoid this. So I think I need to because I want to preach on 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul is continuing with uh, the group there who are, who are giving him a lot of resistance, and it's very difficult. And then I want to talk about Matthew, uh, which is a continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, but perhaps for most people the most important uh, area in this long katina of, uh, you've heard it said this, I say this, da-da, um, is about divorce. So I thought I might say something about divorce and how the church has understood divorce over time and some things that I was taught a long time ago about divorce when I was in seminary and how we might understand it uh, today. Um, and make sense of, of this uh, teaching, if that's what we want to call it, and uh, see where we go from there. Maybe that will prompt some conversation afterwards. Paul is uh, writing to the church in Corinth. This is the first letter to the Corinthians. By the way, there, there's a lot of biblical scholarship that would suggest that First and Second Corinthians may be more than one, two letters. That may be more letters in each one, and they've been combined into uh, into letters. Uh, there exists another uh, Corinthians, Third Corinthians, which uh, is not in the canon. By the way, that's the Greek word for canon. Here, We're showing off yesterday. <laughs> anyway, um, there is Third Corinthians, which is orthodox to a degree. But it's four letters that Paul wrote, and it's a compilation of the four letters that already appear, and and it's late. So it isn't in the canon of the New Testament. Paul is dealing with some people in Corinth who believe that they have the true religion, the true expression of Christianity. And elsewhere, before and after uh, this section, he describes them. Uh, and he uses the word uh, pneumatikos, which means spirit-filled, or uh, spiritualists. 
and another word, psychikos, which means psychic, you know, which is like who have powers to see uh, into the future or to see unseen things and interpret them and so forth. And what he's contending here is that uh, this has not served to build up the body of Christ, but has served to create division and difficulty. And one of the things that he's speaking about is that there are people there who have created factions. And he gives two examples. I belong to Apollos and I belong to Paul. And he says, we're both servants of the Lord in so many words. And we were here to bring you this message, but we, we weren't here to create followers or to create a, a group of people that within the community who divide over, the, over who said what about what is true and what isn't true. And the other thing he's saying about these practices uh, that uh, were part of that community with at least some of them is that they are in fact an expression of an immature spirituality. So whenever I read this text, I think about G.K. Chesterton's famous remark when people stop believing in God, they don't stop believing. They'll, they believe anything. They'll believe anything. And in our present culture and outlook, there's a lot of that going around, right? People will believe in anything, particularly if it sounds kind of edgy and uh, counterintuitive or a contrarian or something like that. They'll immediately say, well... You know, this, this uh, is something that we, we think is probably true, but it's been suppressed because there are forces at work uh, in the culture that seek to do this to people who, you know, are on the bleeding edge of whatever it is they want to be on. So Paul is saying, when we say this, I came here, and when I preached the gospel to you and this church community was created, uh, I, I uh, gave you milk instead of solid food. And he's saying this because he's affirming a basic principle. This is also in the epistle to the Hebrews. Paul didn't write Hebrews, but it's the idea of uh, being immature in your spiritual growth. And one of the first principles about the practice of the spiritual life is that we realized it continues to be unfinished business for us. It is a process. We have been invited to follow the Savior on the way. We have been invited to begin now to enter this process in, the, in sacramental churches like St. Like Luke's or in the Episcopal Church. We believe, for example, that your baptism is the, is the beginning of that journey. It's entirely uh, true to make the case that people could have been on that journey a long time before they got baptized. But it is a journey and a continuum. And so you learn more as you apply yourself intentionally. <coughs> Excuse me. And <coughs> Paul is saying that there are people in this community who believe that they've already arrived, that they're a mature uh, and holy, holy uh, created spiritual entity. And he said, you're neglecting these processes and you need to be able to understand this. So another important thing to say about this reading is that... Um, Paul uses the term flesh, and I think a lot of people misunderstand that uh, because, and there's certainly a lot of Christian preaching and writing over the centuries which has talked about the flesh in a way that uh, gives us to understand perhaps that the physical world 
and even our physical bodies are the flesh and that uh, the flesh is to be eschewed. So there are even certain brands of, of Christianity that are not altogether orthodox, which says, you know, some of these uh, uh, Gnostic Gospels, Jesus said, uh, I'm going to get crucified and it's a good thing for Judas to have betrayed me to do this, so then I will die and be freed from this mortal body. Because this is the corruption. Paul said, when he uses the word flesh, he means all of the human person that turns away from God and in on itself. Not the physical, our physical nature, not the material world but all that is uh, disposed in the human person to turn away from God and in on ourselves, you know, or believe that we, we have the solution and that that's something that we need to uh, um, just focus on what that is and we'll be fine, you know. So the flesh is, is not our, the physical material world. We should not uh, believe that that is so. So one of the ways to allow the cult of personality to um, get, in, get make, be pernicious, excuse me, is when we begin to think about uh, all of the contention and the division that th this can cause. You know, all institutions and certainly parish churches are filled with this kind of thing. Uh, organizations within parishes and dioceses or charitable organizations and so forth uh, have gatekeepers people who are uh, sort of depute themselves to make sure that uh, their particular area of power and control is, is monitored closely and people need to be regulated with regard to how they come in or go out or what they do or who, who their loyalties are with and so on and so on. And Paul is talking about these really ordinary and commonplace things uh, in the life of the uh, Corinthian church. And so our, what we get from this lesson, in my opinion, is that we need to learn something about what it means when we speak of spiritual maturity and how do we understand that. And to stand at some critical distance always from uh, sort of uh, stuff that appears uh, too good to be true with regard to spiritual growth. So let's talk a little bit about Matthew's Gospel. Remember, Matthew uh, believes that Jesus is the new Moses. And so the Sermon on the Mount, which began with the Beatitudes two weeks ago when we were celebrating uh, Candlemas, it then moves to an extended discourse about ethics. And today that continues. And it's very rabbinical the way Jesus speaks in this particular case. You have heard that it was said, da-da, but I say to you this. So it's a, it's a kind of teaching that would have been very familiar in, in the ancient Near East. I hope you can see that um, it would be hard, a hard stretch to believe or to take Jesus literally about a lot of this. Do you think that the, the Savior would like us to <laughs> mutilate ourselves? cut our hands off, do these kinds of things. There's a lot of hyperbole in this section. 
And the result of this is that we need to remind ourselves we're not to take this literally, but Jesus is overemphasizing the point, which means that you need to be committed and you need to say uh, that this is, this is what it is you think is the right way to, uh, to follow God in some ways. But the most uh, controversial one is we have today Matthew's uh, comments on divorce. So I need to say a few things by way of introduction. Uh, Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity understand divorce differently. There has always been divorce in the church. In Western Christianity, it has another name in in the Roman Catholic Church, right? So you have to go through a process if you want to get divorced. We don't call it divorced. We call it annulled. In the Episcopal Church, if a couple who, as the canon law says, have a previous spouse still living... You have to make application to the bishop of the diocese to receive permission to perform the marriage. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, they will permit people to be divorced and remarried in the church three times. And one of the things that the Eastern Orthodox speaks about when they... They don't make it easy, by the way, so don't get forget this wrong. Boy, you must be You wouldn't want to go through that, I'm sure, but anyhow. One of the things, though, they do speak about, which I think anybody who's been in the helping professions or a pastor understands when the Orthodox talk about the spiritual death of the marriage, what that means. And how we understand it. The other thing is that when you are married in the Greek church or the Russian church or the, uh, again, the liturgy that is used is much more penitential than the regular marriage liturgy. And so there are parts in the liturgy where the couple uh, actually confess their failures and ask God to help them do better. And in our tradition in the Anglican Church, when uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury married Prince Charles and Camilla, he had them do something which we don't have in our wedding liturgy in any of the churches, and that is they had to kneel down and say the general confession at one point in the liturgy. So it has some connection to this idea that the Orthodox use. So, what, what is going on with Matthew? Uh, the, 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 the strictest prohibition against divorce in the Bible is from Mark's Gospel, where Jesus' prohibition of divorce is absolute. The earliest writing in the New Testament is from the letters of Paul. They predate the Gospels. So in Corinthians, where this is, I'm going to speak about, uh, probably dating somewhere in the early 50s A.D., Mark's gospel was written about 65 or 70. Matthew's gospel was written between 75 and 80. 
Luke between 75 and 80, and John around 90. So you have some idea of the chronology. So early on, Paul says, this is from me and not the Lord. But if you are married to a non-believer, you can divorce them. In Matthew's gospel, he said, you can't get it. You know, Moses allowed you to get a bill of divorce and do that. I say to you, uh, the only reason you can divorce your wife is because of, it's in the translation here, unchastity. And you can divorce them because of unchastity. What does this all mean? It doesn't mean we want to focus on these narrow little, oh, well, those are the only exceptions. It means that the church, which is prior to the scriptures, felt free to depart from the strict teaching of Jesus. And why do you think that was so? Because they were around now long enough to have what we call the pastoral experience of the church. What do you do with this? How do you handle this? This may be a little too lofty, but when I was in seminary, they said, here are the three things we've got to consider when we read this, these passages. The eschatological horizon of Jesus, the freedom of the early church to alter the teaching of Jesus in his absolute prohibition of divorce, and the role of marriage and divorce in our own time together with the pastoral experience of the church. So when Jesus was speaking what, as Jesus, the human being, was he thinking about which was ahead? And all of his preaching and teaching is, is that the kingdom is going to come any time. Right? And so was Paul. So Paul said elsewhere also in his writings, uh, if you're married, fine. And if you're not married, don't get married. <laughs> Everything's going to happen soon here. So just stay right where you are. Don't do a thing, you know. The freedom of the early church to alter the teaching of Jesus in his absolute prohibition of divorce and the role of marriage and divorce in our own time, together with the pastoral experience of the church. I was going to say something else and it's gone completely out of my head. But the, the, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, there's much more to this than just saying, well, oh, boy, yes, I know what I'm going to say. You, what, what Christian religious group do you think has the highest divorce rate in the United States? It's evangelical Christians. They're even, a, they're even ahead of Episcopalians. <laughs> Right? Episcopalians have a lower divorce rate than evangelical Christians, like by three or four percentage points. It's still up there. But, you know, we have about the same divorce rate as Jews in the statistical measurement of, of, of these things. But people who are, you know, in these huge... Uh, have a very high divorce rate. Don't think, I, I'm not suggesting that there aren't people who are very upset about this and talk endlessly about it and say, say 
uh, what it is, but sometimes if you, even if you have sound doctrine, you can't stay married. There's something wrong. Also, just as a footnote, in 1900, the average length of a marriage in the United States was 19 years. So when you make a promise that you're going to stay married forever until you're parted by death, they didn't have as long to wait. (laughs) Thanks to the advances of, of medical science. Right? So it meant something quite different. I don't want to treat this too lightly, but the point I'm trying to make is that uh, when we read these passages, this is why it requires some uh, looking into or thinking about what, what this means. And here's the other thing that I've always believed, and I always tell this to people, the people that I uh, preside at their marriage. It is no inconsistency, in my view, for the Episcopal Church to say that we believe that marriage is to be lifelong and indissoluble. And to say that the, past, the pastoral experience of people uh, is the thing about which we need always to have this conversation. Some peop- There's a lot of people that I know who've gotten married and never should have been married. You know, did you know that in the Episcopal Church, marriage is the only sacrament a priest can refuse to perform and give no reason? If somebody comes and says, we want it, would you marry us and would you do this? You can say no and not say why. You know, that wouldn't be true in England because we're civil servants over there because it's an established church. So we're part of that. But here... Uh, the canon law says a priest may refuse to perform any marriage uh, and so forth. And here's how this all works and here's what the rules are. So when I speak about all this, it doesn't mean that we're treating this in a cavalier fashion by any stretch of the imagination. But um, there's an all, with things like this that touch so many people so deeply, uh, sentimentality is always a temptation about this stuff. One of the best sermons I ever heard in seminary was by a priest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who said, sentimentality is almost always characterized by a low threshold of pain. So we always need to take care uh, about that, you know. So I think what Matthew was really talking about today, or the Jesus of Matthew is talking about uh, the thorough examination of our motives more than any other uh, gospel. The Jesus of Matthew's gospel is talking about your internal states. You know, like Jimmy Carter got himself in hot water because he said that he'd looked at a woman in lust during the presidential campaign. So here's he was thinking of Matthew's gospel, no doubt. So these, so these things uh, are interesting because they do have to do with our motives. And how, how do we think about that? Well, in my judgment is on a regular basis, we all need to, to examine our motives and see if in relational terms and, and our own inter- interior emotional, mental, and spiritual states, we have corrupt motives. And a lot of times we operate on uh, the basis of corrupt motives, either out of self-interest 
out of self-centered fear, out of uh, a whole, a lot of different things. And there's also a number of times when we're capable, even for short periods, of operating in relationship with godly motives. And I know in my own life, when I operate on the basis of corrupt motives, things do not go well. They don't go well. And when I work on uh, operating with godly motives, things go better. It's better. So this week, uh, think about your motives and uh, how, how you're doing with regard to uh, uh, cleaning up your motives uh, and avoid the temptation and self-congratulation uh, if you believe that you have made spiritual progress. Uh, coming to spiritual maturity is a lifelong process, but we all know as people of faith that God will be with, with us always on the journey. Amen. Amen.